All right, good. I got. Oh, can good. you guys hear me? Yeah. <laughs> it's like we can't cool. hear you. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, that happens every time. I don't know why. Uh, how you guys doing? Doing well, brother. How you doing today? Doing good. Good. Uh, yeah, I mean, the reason I wanted to uh, talk to you guys more was after the the OMU after hours, we got in a really interesting uh, conversation. At least I thought. Um, and I wanted to pick you guys' brains. So Absolutely, please. Uh, love Ryan, Dr. Stephanie, could you guys just introduce yourselves and um, tell everyone what you guys do? Cool. Oh, I'm starting? Cool. My name's Ryan Trificana, the last name's relevant. Uh, owner and operator of a facility in Denver called uh, GenFit. I'm also uh, recently a GMB trainer. And uh, yeah, that's me in a nutshell. I think that's relevant to the conversation. Cool. Definitely. Um, I'm... <laughs> I'm Stephanie. Um, I have my doctorate in communication. My focus is on interpersonal and family communication. I run small businesses. The first one is called Unscripted Relationships, where I work with um, folks who are in non-monogamous relationships on how to communicate. And then I also own GenFit with Ryan. Um, my primary movement has been in uh, yoga and pole dance, and that has informed also all of the stuff that I do in my PhD with regards to movement and how we sort of translate our programming to our students and what we hope to do in the future as well. Um, right now, I'm in the throes of writing a book and um, getting some online coursework built and all that kind of stuff too. So that's me. And what is your book about? Um, so I'm loosely calling it, use your words right now, um, I'm loosely calling it that my publisher has not agreed to it yet. Um, <laughs> it is about how folks, so on, in like the nitty gritty scale, it's about how folks in non-monogamous relationships have to create new language in order to express their experience in the world. Culturally, we have an expectation for monogamy, and that expectation has set our language up to provide information for people to trans transmit ideas about monogamy specifically. And it's things you often don't think about. And so when you start experiencing relationship style that's completely different, you oftentimes find yourself not having the language to actually explain what's going on. And so I'm looking at this from a cultural level of how do we create words? Just what is neologism and what does that do? And um, how does community Unity builds those words. And then specifically what I'm looking at is the actual legitimate creation of words like words like metamor, which is your partner's partner um, in the monogamy world. Um, I'm looking at how people use metaphors to create understanding. And then finally, I'm talking about embodied word creation. How do you feel a new meaning? And what does that feel like in relationship? And that's sort of where a lot of the connection comes to what I do with um, bodies in space, essentially. That's interesting, because I'm just thinking when you're in um, the average person in our culture gets in a relationship, or they meet someone they like, they automatically think um, there's a rule of monogamy, right? They, there's all these like structures and rules that are set in place. Yeah. And, and then you never really verbalize them. There's just unwritten rules, right? So um, what I've noticed is even when people verbalize them, like why, if you, I think you were talking about asking why five times, right? Like when you do ask why, they get pretty soon to like, that's just how it is, or this is right and this is wrong. And even if they can rationalize that, maybe that's not the case. Um, it's the feeling that is what you have to deal with, right? That's the main thing. So how do you, you know, in your work, how has that changed or expressed or transformed if it needs to be? Yeah, typically the folks that I work with have sort of already started questioning monogamy. Um, I don't usually like walk into a room full of people who are like married or engaged and start like spewing, like, let's deconstruct your relationship style. Um, so usually it's people who are already curious about it, who are already thinking about it. And the first thing that people tend to look for is someone to talk to about it or read about it or research about it and see like, how does your relationship look and um, what does that mean? And how do you, how do you navigate 
those sort of experiences. And in my, when I work directly with clients, cause I, I'm, I'm a, I call it advising, I'm an educator. Um, when I work with people and they first start breaking down those walls, a lot of times I'm greeted with questions, how does it work? And then once they finally find a partner that um, they find, they, they started this with, that's when we start to talk about emotions. And I use various tools on, um, I call it an emotional body compass, where we figure out what you're feeling, how you're feeling it. But there really is this meeting of having to understand what's happening in the world around you. So that I actually have a little graph that I can show you. It's not a graph, it's an image that I work yes. on. I love graphs. <laughs> this is my this is my like model of unscripted relationships, if you will. Um, but you have to look at it from knowing yourself, knowing your culture, and then the relational co-creation. And so once people tend to start to realize, like I am, I've only done monogamy because it's what I've been told. And when to question it, and when they, they start to think through it, and they realize that it's not necessarily for that's when they start to hit emotional walls and you have to work through those emotions in a way that our culture also doesn't prepare us for. Um, we're like, shut down your emotions. Don't think about them, especially things like jealousy where people are like, ah, I can't feel jealous. It's the end of the world. And it's like, no, you're, it's okay. Like it's fine. Embrace it. Just deal with it in a way that's reasonable rather than denying that it exists and things like that. And then you have to then do the co-creation portion too, which a lot of trust. It's a lot of, communication it's a lot of right how does this work do our ideas of an ideal relationship actually match up how do we bring in other people um do you do it together or do you do all of that kind of stuff and kind of also i would say like defining where your own unique triggers and limitations and all that are because in that prescriptive monogamous thing we'll kind of have the like set standards of like this is the stuff that pisses me off that shouldn't fly in these relationships or that i don't expect you to do in a non-monogamous relationship, everyone might have different things that set them off, different things that they're okay with. So it's kind of up to the two people involved in the relationship to figure out like, hey, what are the do's and don'ts? What is our set of rules, our set of standards that works for us as unique individuals and also as a unit? Yeah. So I think that's a big part of it too. And I'm trying to- So I think oh, the chart, <laughs> <laughs> look for the graph. But, but when you were saying that uh, like pre-scripted set of standards that a structure that our culture has in place. So I feel like there's a lot of benefits for that. And that two people really are on the same page automatically and compromise how they're their ideal. Um, so if you give the people the freedom to be like, this is what I want, what do you want? Then you there isn't that compromise like this is what it is, you have to find a balance. How do you not have one person like in a You guys there? Sorry. Hang on. Can you hear me? Well, I'm not going to be able to tell if you can. Can hear you guys me. hear me? Yeah, I can hear him. He's just he's just glitching out. Okay, we can hear you now. Ryan's going to try to join from his phone and see if he. Yes. How do I join the live? No, someone just called me on the phone. That's. Hmm, I don't know. Your phone is weird. Mm -hmm. I'm just know. trying to do our best through here. Well, shit. <laughs> you guys are good. Someone called me. Okay. That's why I paused. Um, okay. Cool. Cool. Yeah, but but I feel like that set structure. Do we need a structure to replace it, or is it best to just be like, we have to figure this out on our own and make up our own structure? I mean, do you find that giving them may have found that works to play with? is a better way than just having them co-create? So I think there's a couple of things to frame this with. And the first is that, yes, there is sort of a general 
cultural understanding of what monogamy should be, but oftentimes even that understanding isn't quite the same. And so then you wind up having a lot of misunderstandings relationally because you're not talking about things that are sort of presupposed as your monogamous standard. And so I think that does cause a lot of problems just inherently in the monogamous world. Um, in non-monogamy, there are a lot of folks who do use monogamy as sort of a platform or as a framework to work off of can you hear me yeah i can hear you okay good you're you're like frozen and swirling so it's stressing me out a little bit the drugs are yeah on my on my phone i can only you're like and then no, that's it um but as long as you can hear me that's cool um so or is that so some people do start at it from they use it as a foundation at large there's rarely people that i have ever run into that like skip up to me and say like i'm a relational anarchist let me deconstruct everything right away like you start with a, a framework so yes i do think that it's important to have some um but also depending on you've been non-monogamous your base level is going to look a lot different right I, I gave up my phone's not cooperating either <laughs> apparently people don't want us to disrupt oh, the man. system <laughs> okay this happens um yeah you guys are too woke i think and they don't want to change the structure of uh, our reality you know bro but that's you know. kind of dude they're not going to hold us down no. <laughs> they, they okay, might us somehow but... <laughs> we can see your face um, this is I, good you're not, you're not a frozen robot yeah good inside i am but not outside. Oh, no. Um, so, yeah, the last thing you were describing was um, different non-monogamous relationships. I think you said a triangle, a hierarchy, and then kind of like a free-for-all. Um, so, which sounds like a free A players in monogamous relationships, um, which made me think there's a lot of monogamous relationships where I feel like one partner is just like, I just don't want to know about it or see it in the house or don't bring it home. Um, I mean, do you, do you consider that a non-monogamous relationship or just a really bad monogamous relationship? <laughs> Honestly, that depends on the people who are involved. In my like particular professional opinion, that tends to not work. Um, like if one partner gets an STD, how are you supposed to talk openly about that with your other partners if that if, if they're problematic? So, it is a type of non-monogamous relationship. Um, is it ethically not? Arguably not. Um, I do know some folks who have made that work for them and they just have a very intense system in place. But for the vast majority of people, that winds up being kind of like training wheels, right? Like it's how they're comfortable into it and then they realize that's not gonna work. Like I do need to know some information, um, especially if you share a home and stuff like that. Like. If your partner's gone, you wonder where they are, like those kinds of things. That's mm. not sustainable in my experience. Yeah. I don't um, think it's so could you, could you guys um, talk about your personal um, relationship if, if you're comfortable? <laughs> Am I starting it off? <laughs> you are. Um, so do you want kind of like a summarization of the orientation of the non-monogamous approach started? like? how we kind of arrived at approaching our relationship that way or? Sure, your story, or, or you could be vague and just kind of talk about the structure that works for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it speaks to the spirit of like the book that Steph's writing and also like her business unscripted relationships. We started seeing each other coming out of serious monogamous relationships. I was back to back serial monogamous. Steph was in like a four year relationship that kind of had some off and on afterwards. And we started seeing each other and we, um, it started out as like casual dating and then like the further along we went and started kind of developing more of a connection steph was looking into the concept of non-monogamy and polyamory and like giving these words and these descriptions that i'd never heard to what it was that we were doing so that kind of started laying the foundation of like 
how we could have a sustainable relationship with one another, but still explore other partnerships and do it in a way that was like open and communicative. Um, so that's kind of what put us down the path to like, hey, we know that we want to be open with each other. We are just in these long term relationships devoted to one. And I was very blunt and saying like, hey, I want to like have the freedom to explore other people. I was candid about that to Steph. She was candid about the same thing. And that's kind of how we got started on that path. And then everything else has been kind of a mixture of resources that Steph has brought to the table, my own experiences, her own experiences, and us kind of filling in the gaps along the way. Yeah, so we've been going 10 years strong now. Yeah. There's been a lot wow. of variations. Yeah. Open the entire time, too, like <laughs> yeah. from the get-go, yeah. Which yeah, surprises a lot of people. It's been a lot of variations. Like, at first, we were just making it up as we went along. Like, we didn't know what we wanted. We didn't know how it was going to look. Um, in the middle, there was more of a definition of primacy and things like that. And then just as we started developing other relationships, we haven't necessarily used that language as much anymore. But then weird shit started happening. Like, you know, we bought a gym together. Um, <laughs> so those kinds of things, but we're unique in that we, we don't live together. Um, I define myself as, I, I call it solo poly. Um, and solo poly is for me, first and foremost, focusing on the things that I need as a human to function and maintain like this idea of wholeness myself. Um, and part of that is I'm a raging introvert and I need a lot of um, alone time. And so that's part of why we structured our lives this way. Um, and I don't know, I don't, do you define yourself really? What do you call I would say, I, 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 again, just like to kind of say what you're saying, I don't really use the words and the titles anymore. Um, I guess if I had to fit it into a categorization, yeah, solo poly with like an inclination of primacy towards yeah. you is probably how I would describe it. Mm -hmm. So, so solo means there is no hierarchy of the relationships. Yeah. Mm, well, solo okay. means more like, oh, how do I want to say this? It means focused on like, I think about the things that I need as a human first, and then I think about like where my um, significant others can come into that and meet me where I'm at. Um, I think a lot of folks who are in monogamous relationships thinks of, think of themselves as like half of a whole. That's why you're like looking for your other half and all that kind of nonsense. Mm -hmm. For me, the solo is more indicative of making sure that I'm a whole human first. Um, not necessarily, you can still be solo poly and have a primary. And I would say that probably arguably that's this, the that closest feels, to that it. That feels accurate. Yeah. And if I have to describe it to people who know those terms and things, that's likely what I would call it. Um, but that being said, like my other partners probably wouldn't be too stoked on that because I think they think of themselves as having some primacy too. So it's interesting. It just depends on one way that a lot of people view primacy is um, that idea of measured monogamous goals like do you live together do you have babies do you pay your bills together i think of them more as like who do i spend my time with um who do i go on vacations with who do i uh what are some other ones who am i most emotionally engaged with on a day-to-day -day basis yeah who do i spend holidays with and so like those things all interplay in the importance of each of these relationships and when a new person comes in you then have to negotiate and navigate what is going to change in this relationship in order to accommodate that other relationship. Yeah. That sounds very complicated. <laughs> it can but be. Guess... It can be, but like, yeah. like monogamy is complicated as shit too. <laughs> that's true. Well, I, that's true. But yeah, I mean, even, so even it makes me think about uh, like in the sister wives in like the Mormon tradition, oh, yeah. um, and I'm sure that's uh, culturally that's big elsewhere, right? <laughs> One man. Yeah, it, it's totally different. But they have like the rules are set, the structures there. Everyone knows what's going on instead of so many moving parts. And yeah, well, and that's like another said, way of communication of sounds it too. like like a lot of folks who do just like start out as poly or just like think about having open relationships and things. They do lay out rules. And I, I call these training wheels, like all of these tools are like training wheels. And oftentimes some of these rules are really effective and really help. But then over time they realize like, you know, I don't need 
24 hours between you having sex with someone else and having sex with me. Like it, that's not a thing that actually I need um, as an example. And so like oftentimes as you move along and you sort of hit these understandings of yourself and your understandings of commitment and your understandings of your partner, like those rules wind up morphing and changing. And so that's why it is a lot of moving parts because we're both dynamic humans and you have to interpret that a relationship with, between us would also be dynamic. Yeah, I think it, it takes into consideration like the evolution of the individual and the relationship and like that same rule or that same standard might not apply three years down the road in a lot of things. It's, I think it's good as a check-in, if anything. It's like, hey, does this agreement that we have that we established like three years ago still stand? Is it still even worth like having or have we moved past it or can it like evolve or change? Um, so I, I kind of like how those check-ins encourage like a, freq a, a frequent like kind of update and like fostering the evolution of the relationship as well. Mm -hmm. I like that. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot of personal development entwined with this because you have to be almost expand your acceptance and take the other person into consideration what they want to do. And also you're taking, I like what you said, solo means taking care of yourself first, because that's huge. I mean, yeah. if something's wrong with you, it's going to bleed over into your other relationships. Um, and it switch topics for a little bit we were also talking about um nonverbal communication uh so you're an expert in communication and i had an idea of doing like a partner organic play workshop with um couples and you know how often are you doing non-sexual physical contact and playing with each other and laughing um have you looked into this at all? I think you said you, you've experimented with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for Unscripted, which is my small business side of things, I write a syllabus every month. And this month is actually couple activities or relationship activities. So you could do it with one other partner or you could do it with multiple partners um, over time. And so this is something that I dabble with a lot, especially when people are building initial relationships with folks. Um, uh, like, how do you establish a unique intimate experience with someone? And how much does that intimate experience, how much is that informed by stuff that happens not in the bedroom? And so like, I do a gazing activity pretty regularly. I like partners to do breathing activities together. Also like sitting back to back uh, breathing activities, like let's check in. Um, but it's also just a really soothing connecting activity. Um, I, I've been playing with in the project we just did fighting monkey. I've been playing with how I can get my clients to use the practice ball with each other. And like, how would that inform that kind of dynamic? And so I do use some of those things, but it's also something that I consistently think about. Um, but I also think that it's really important to have connections that are in, like between people who aren't romantic partners too. So I do just a lot of partner work in my classes at large, especially my dance classes, um, just because of the way they encourage you to move differently. And that's just speaks to how movement informs connection at large, I think. Yeah, I think especially um, like rough housing is a, something lost, a lost practice in adults at least, natural and kids. And when I've seen people, especially people or couples do that, you know, they get aggressive, but they're smiling at the same time and it's non-sexual, they're, they're playing. They look so like refreshed and rejuvenated after that. You know, it, it's something that maybe they haven't experienced in a while. So, I mean, that's what guys are getting in like jujitsu. Yeah. Like they're getting contact from other other men a lot of times and it's, where else do you receive that in in a non-violent or non-romantic setting? So I think there's a lot of goodies for the body and the mind that are um, being left on the table when we don't. That kind of leaves our lives. Yeah. No, I, I would I would agree. It's like um the the further along I go in my practice, the more I find the value of the connectivity of working with other people in a multitude of, set of settings, whether it's like reacting to another partner, like actual contact with a partner. Like, um, I think Michael touched upon it in the uh, fighting monkey module, how he it's he finds it hard to train like by himself, unless it's like a certain kind of thing. Like I've, 
I've gotten almost, I don't want to say dependent, but like, I just see such immense value of like the feedback and the connection that you get from working with other people in various types of scenarios that um, it's, it's like, I, I, it's again, it's just of immense value to me. And I think it's like you said, DJ, just something that's could be explored a little bit more further. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's therapeutic in a sense. Uh, there's a question I see that I'd like to hear you guys' answer. Uh, Marie Matteo seven says, do you get jealous when someone is better in bed and she is, or he is hotter? So I guess it's a jealousy question and a question about, is that person going to take priority over me maybe, which is a valid concern. So what happens when people have, have those concerns or feelings? Um, first of all, like jealousy is a normal emotional response that mm. most people feel. It's gonna happen. So yes, of course, jealousy happens. Um, culturally and in monogamous culture, we give way more power jealousy than I think we should. Um, the fact that people used to be able to plead jealousy if they murdered their partner and like that was okay, like that just inherently tells us like the problematic thought process we have about jealousy. So yeah, sure. Like if someone Ryan's dating, I think has like epic boobs. I have, I'm a f small boobed girl. Like sure. Sometimes I might have like an insecurity flare up just to be perfectly candid. Um, but ultimately like are my boobs reflective of my character and are they indicative of the significance of our relationship ultimately? No. And so once I like come down off of my like, do you want to motorboat her all the time ledge? Um, and Ryan like hugs me and says like, you're great. I love you. Then I just put on my like adult pants and cool, move along. So sure. Like when you have ongoing partners come in and out, like that's part of the perk of this is we'll always have other people like come in and be cool and enrich our lives in different ways that we don't. It's the ways in which you do stand in yourself and the way you do value yourself that that becomes different. So it's not better than I usually think of. It's just sure. different. Like, and that was, and that was a dialogue that we like have ongoingly been developing. And it was something I told myself when I first started feeling the inklings of jealousy or insecurity into some of the partners in regards to some of the partners that Steph would find herself with, I would ask myself, all right, why am I feeling jealous? And even if it was like superficial things like their height or they were more like or better at something that I, I valued. I, I deconstructed it and tried to find my own self-worth and also understand what it was I brought to the relationship and what it was that Steph appreciated about me. And in like place, she tried doing the similar exercises. And it helps that we share that with each other, saying like, hey, even though I'm seeing this person, these are the things that I value about you. And yeah, I might feel jealous in this regard, but this is like the stuff that I know I, I like about what I bring to the relationship and also stuff that I value about myself. And so it does come down to valuing yourself as an individual, loving yourself for who you are and knowing that it is not, it's not about who's better. It, it is about just different. Yeah. And someone is enriching your life and hopefully uh, your partner's life as a byproduct. And you have to be comfortable with telling your partner that you feel mm -hmm. that way too. Like sure i've thrown fits and i've kicked and streamed and whined and cried and ryan just like hugs me and pats me on the head and tells me he loves me and puts on british baking show and gives me a cookie and i'm good like it depends on how you also need to be taken care of <laughs> gordon ramsay <laughs> oh. oh paul hollywood he taught me how to take a he taught me how to cook a steak that gordon ramsay character <laughs> so it, like that's that's part of it though like a small book a work book that I work with my clients, I call it the jealousy shift. And it's actually changing your relationship with your experience with jealousy. Because once you view it, just like any other emotion, like Identi happiness, like identifying sadness, it, yeah, then it's, like, it is what it is. Like acknowledging that you're jealous and it's okay. Like not feeling like it's this green headed monster that people make it out to me. It's like, oh, if I'm jealous, it must be wrong. Or I shouldn't be feeling jealousy, like not attaching shame to the feeling of jealousy, but like yeah. sitting in it, acknowledging that you're jealous and then uh, working backwards from there and then figuring out why and oh but it's important to say that sometimes your jealousy is right yeah <laughs> like jealousy is indicative oh. of a threat jealousy includes three things you your partner and a perceived threat sometimes that perceived threat is real and like that's when like you thank your i don't know evolutionary emotional background the for giving you the red flags you needed to understand that and talk through it spidey sense lizard brain yeah yeah, I like that because every um, fear, jealousy, even let's say you get injured in a situation and your body's freaking out when you re-enter it, it is your nervous system trying to protect you and save your life. 
even yeah. a panic attack, right? Like it's these old systems trying to save you and shut you down and like play dead or whatever. Um, so yeah, I think stress like accepting them and say, saying thank you to your body and then trying to move past it instead of hating against your, your own, yeah. which, which they're automatic responses, right? They're not conscious responses you're having. Yeah. Um, yeah. I love that you said that. And it, from what you guys are saying, it keeps going back to, I view it as self-development and like you're being forced in these situations where it brings up something out of your comfort zone and you have to express it. You have to acknowledge it. You have to work through it, bring it out to light. And I feel like you guys are just more evolved than the rest of us. I don't uh, think that's true at all. <laughs> I don't think that, I, I, I'm, I'm always an advocate for it's not about the relationship type. It's about the decisions that you make to get to that relationship. So often when I tell people I'm polyamorous, they'll be like, well, how did you decide that you were that? And my brain goes to like, well, how did you decide to be monogamous? And most people, when I ask them that question, they say they didn't decide that it was just something that's been sort of grandfathered into their life. So I just want to take that if you are monogamous, fucking fantastic, make the decision to do that and do it well. Um, instead of just being a complacent asshat who then cheats and does terrible things to people. Um, if you're not inclined towards monogamy, then create the life that you're wanting by using your words. Well, what okay. I see and what, what scares me about monogamy, especially people who are good at it, is serial monogamy. They go from one relationship to another one, to another one, to another one, leaving like burn bridges and chaos and babies and um they're he, they've been success they've been monogamous the whole time but it doesn't seem like a positive effect on themselves and the people around them um so even though you are monogamous is that really the best thing for you if you keep this turnover rate you know what yeah. i mean um well, that's and that's what marriage is that speaks to what indicators of success are too. I think unfortunately we have this idea that you have to be in a long-term relationship and that relationship has to keep going in order for it to be successful. I think we would have a monogamy and polyamory if we just embrace the fact that like sometimes relationships should end and that doesn't mean that you broke up. It means that you both made like a reasonable decision. And I feel like I kind of have joked about this in the past because I think Gwyneth Paltrow wrote a book about like conscious uncoupling or some kind of nonsense. But I, to me, it was Jesus more Christ. about, <laughs> that was like, hmm. um, but like, I, I just like to push against like, what is it that creates success? And longevity isn't always a marker of success in a relationship. In fact, it might be better for you to just step away from that and evolve the relationship into something different instead of just continuing to hurt the other person. And so that's, that's, that's sort of one approach to that. And I like, I am, I'm not serial monogamy doesn't make me mad as long as you're not an asshole. Like yeah. what you described. Like the wake asshole. of destruction and babies crying is not good. Yeah. But, like, I mean. Don't be an asshole. If you're going to intentionally be serial monogamous, like that's fine. But like, I think what makes that difficult is like, well, how long will the relationship last? How do you know you're serially monogamous? Are you just holding out for someone who's going longer? Like what, what is your beef and issue there? And I think that that would take a lot of work in and of itself. Um, so. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think most people know. I think it's just they're thinking in the moment, oh, I'm I'm in love or whatever. I have this feeling it goes away and then they're like, it's not working. It falls apart. And then they just repeat it and they don't have that. They can't step outside and look. But real quick, how would you guys describe love if we're going to use that word? I mean, scientifically, it's like a chemical drop in your brain, right? Um, that's so actually what happens. Right. Like you literally have all kinds of shit, oxytocin, all kinds of things happen. And like, it creates a feeling a physically embodied sensation and emotion. Um, for me, I define love differently depending on the person and how I feel it. Um, with Ryan, like the way that I love him is incredibly companionate. I care about his well being on a regular basis. Um, love for me with him means that I make sure to check in with him every day. Um, that his needs are being met and that I am being the best person that I can be for him. Um, some days loves means with him, like I need to not see you today cause I'm going to flick you in the eye. Um, 
and that's better for both of us. Sure. <laughs> so it depends today. That's how I'm feeling about this guy. Mm. <laughs> what about you? Uh, like for me, it's love is a little bit, I don't, I don't go like the, the chemical aspect. It's like, it's, I like what you said about how it varies from person to person. I would definitely agree with stuff that like our love for each other has like evolved so much over the years that there's like a, a very companionate foundation where we can be very honest and very transparent. Um, but for a new relationship where I'm starting to de develop feelings of affection and love, it might not necessarily feel that way. It might feel more um, urgent and more like kind of, um, uh, I guess, like a little bit more um, indefinable. In, in the end, it's just like a feeling. It's like, I, not to quote the Matrix would be that dork, but it's like, you know, you just, you just like, you know. Aww, yeah. That's very romantic. And it, sure. And it's like, it's one of the weirdly like, rare areas where I am kind of uber romantic, but it's like, for me, it's intuitive and it's a feeling um, and kind of hard to define. Uh, but if like, it's contextualized with like the person that I'm speaking about, I can lend a little bit more of a descriptor towards it. Yeah, I, I love that. Like, you know, because even if you could, like, there's that story about the, the blind person who's been in the dark their whole life and they could explain everything about light and photons and how it works and the reactions but once you see light, it's an experience, right? And it's embodied in your present and the feeling, um, which we just slap a word for, mm. which can mean a lot of things, love. Um, I, I think that's important. Yeah, it's you know. And I guess it can evolve. And like you're saying, day to day, like I'm sure your love when you first met is different than it is 10 years later. Yeah. Um, but it's still love, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's important to say that, like, it for me, I've never felt love the same way, either embodied or how I would verbally describe it for any of my partners. It always feels different. Um, and I think that's something that, if, especially if you don't experience love simultaneously, if you are monogamous or serially monogamous, it's hard to find those nuances. But like, so for me, I'm, I'm inclined. I usually kind of max out. I'm, I get polysaturated, if you will, at like three partners. Um, so like my last partner, I was with Phil for six years and I was with Ryan at that point in time That's funny. as well. Polysaturated. <laughs> um, and, but feeling those feelings of love, Phil also, um, over that time, it was just so distinctly unique and different. And so when it came down to it, it was very easy for me to verbalize it on a, like a day-to-day -day basis. Like, what does love mean to me that day? But it also is that embodied experience of how it felt different in, in each relationship. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well put. Um, can I tell you guys something I'm really concerned about, especially with the younger generation, is uh, Tinder. What I've seen relationships now are so different than when we were younger it's like yeah. too accessible and there's no skin in the game like I'm before people who are like for that reason yeah i mean there's lots of skin in the game in tinder too much there? yeah <laughs> sorry yeah that's that real nice yeah. polysaturated to that one you're on fire I think um, it desens I think it desensitizes people, and this is like what could contribute to that particular like that particular plague of like serial monogamy. People meet someone on these readily accessible dating apps, whether yeah. it's Tinder, okay, Cupid, Bumble, or whatever. They date for a little while, and like the first sign of conflict, there's no effort for resolution. It's like, oh, I'll just move on because I have access to like this infinite database of potential partners that can meet my varying needs, like depending on where they are that day. And I think it's like the frequency, the accessibility, it just makes us kind of um lose a little bit of the value we place on developing relationships i can i can notice a distinct difference with how i used to interact with people that i met in person versus um interacting with people that i correspond with online and then meet in person there's i i remember a lot more significance of being developed from my relationships that like happened organically with like that first look across the room or whatever um versus like an updating platform like tinder yeah and, and there's no repercussions like our after you break up with someone um, and it was someone you met through friends and your friends with their friends and you're all in a group, it would be awkward for everyone. Mm -hmm. And they'd be telling you like, hey, you should call her or hey, and it's like you had to pick a side and yeah. it would take a long time to get over. Now it's just like, bam, onto the next one sitting yeah. on the bench that I got, People whatever. Ghost and too. take the low road. Yeah, it's, it's a, a processed version of the organic dating we used to have mm -hmm. and that can't be can't be healthy so I, I wonder like what impact that's going to have on future generations especially when the algorithm gets so smart 
that Google's just going to say, hey, this is your soulmate for right now. Yeah. Like, the nightmare. This is who you need to meet. Yeah. <laughs> I love, so part of my jam and the way in which I like to think about the world is I, I think in systems. And I think that individualism is one of the primary systems that govern the way in which we as a Western culture interact with the people that are around us. And I wonder how much that, like the Tinder phenomena, um, just pushes us more in the direction of individualization because we, we hone towards that. Like, how do I meet my needs? How do I stay on high? How do I use relationships as a self-medication? How do I sort of really push myself to be like, the highest feeling person that I can in a world that continually tries to dampen our emotional experience and things like that. So systematically, I think it's, it is inherently problematic until you do meet someone that sticks and that like, I'm not sure I'm, I don't work with a lot of people under the 20 year old demographic because usually it's about like 25 to 34 when people have had a few monogamous relationships and get annoyed and decide to do something different. That's sort of the demographic I tend to work with. Um, but it's, it is definitely interesting to think about how it, that individualism and collectivism will be influenced as we move forward. And so that's interesting you said that. So do you think most people who opt for a non-monogamous lifestyle did it after realizing how failed their attempts at monogamy were? Or I think there's sort of two like... populations. Um, there's one population that just thinks that they've been non-monogamous their whole life. And these were the people who had like multiple boyfriends and girlfriends when they were like in fourth grade and like can call upon those scripts. And then like eventually like sort of did monogamy, but then had always found themselves in that. There's a large population that's that way. There is another population that like was in a monogamous relationship, started that like skepticism, that healthy monogamous skepticism. And then they realized like, mm, maybe something different would work. And like, I value you and I want to maintain this relationship and this relationship means a lot to me but this other person is really meaningful to me too how can i make this work simultaneously and it, it winds up working more for people than i think they expect it to because monogamy becomes this insurmountable thing that like well if i'm not monogamous like so much of my identity is fading away and all this kind of crap and there is a risk to it too like it is stigmatized um and so there is that problem but no, I would say thankfully, uh, like currently where we live, I think there's more and more people at least aware uh, to the concept of non-monogamy and poly. So I don't think it's, I mean, it's still very heavily stigmatized, but I'd say there's more resources and more people that you can connect with, whether it's like meetup groups, um, like organizations or whatever. So um, I, I think it's, um, it, it's encouraging for people that might be curious about it, that might have kind of kept it suppressed maybe some years back. Mm -hmm. So um I feel like it's um, it's encouraging for people to maybe like think of this and be like, hey, maybe this is like the re relational approach that I want to take. And I see that these other people are doing it or maybe they have a friend that's spoken of it and that could be kind of encouraging and um, motivate them to explore it. In it makes life way. a lot easier for us. Yeah, and 10 years ago when I was like, I'm polyamorous, people oh, like dude, their brain would like, Yeah, it was so weird. <laughs> like even five years ago. So, now it's like, yeah. all right, there's some other people who know what this is. Yeah. At least I have some context to talk to you about it now. Dating is tough. <laughs> yeah. Dude, well, where I live, so I moved out here in like Temecula, California uh, six something years ago. And it was a, it's a very conservative, like air bubble in California. Mm. Um, like everyone goes to church and listens mm. to country music and, you know, they drink wine maybe, but I found this is one of the biggest swinger populations like mm. I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. Well, that's, they, that's actually, they meet at churches normal. and uh, yeah. So what, what is with. It blew my mind. I had no idea about this whole like underbelly of culture that was going on. Um, and they're all married and families and then they you know, <laughs> I love that you what an underbelly. Kind of is. <laughs> it is kind yes, of Yes, it's an under because I, I was right under my nose and it's still like people aren't oh, I'm in an open relationship. It's like very hush secret society, oh, yeah. but it's secret huge. parties and gatherings. And the powerful people in town, like it's crazy. So is is that a whole different section of non-monogamy is that what is so there is a help man me with this? who wrote a book called the lifestyle i can't remember his name let me go look at the book really quick <laughs> stand by <laughs> i want to see that graph too 
Yeah, I have a graph, I have a book. So this guy, Terry Gould, this is a book called The Lifestyle, he talks about what he thinks the history of swinging was. And his argument was that swinging really started to come to the fore during World War II um, in the military, actually. Um, so you'll actually find highly conservative folks that are drawn to it simply because that's where arguably it originated. And the idea behind it was um, when men, before they would go off to war, they would get married and they would make sure that they had sort of sexually bonded with other couples so that if they didn't come back from the war, their partner would be taken care of. Um, so it still has this very like family, family values mentality behind it. But as it sort of evolved over time in the 70s and things like that, um, then it got, it got kind of the hippie rap, right? Like people were in communes mm -hmm. and that's the only way swinging happened. But it's very firmly is a part of people's identity. And the thing that I think is interesting is that people up uphold the external perception of monogamy, but explore sexual relationship of that. And oftentimes there is a, there is sort of an unspoken, sometimes it's spoken, depending on the swinging community that you're in, that you're not going to have an emotional connection to the people that you're sleeping with. So you are sort of upholding that monogamous standard of um, emotional exclusivity, where the physical exclusivity isn't necessarily there. And I feel like it also falls into an interesting like loophole category by maintaining that external structure of monogamy, but saying like, hey, behind closed doors, these are the activities we'll engage in. As long as we forego this emotional component, we're still upholding the contract of our marriage. And then secondarily, I think another one that's across the board with swingers is they always like play, not always, but they typically play together. In Mr. Polyamorous relationship where you're dating separately from your primary partner or your partners, swingers like a couple that's like swinging with other couples are all in the same room or it's all kind of like consented that like, Hey, we play together and we do this thing together. It's not you going off with another guy and interacting separately from the marriage. And I think that falls within the construct of upholding the uh, surface, uh, um, perception of the marriage. But again, all different swingers do it yeah. different ways. And there are some people who are swingers who also define themselves as polyamorous. So there are people who defy these particular rules, but this is kind of a broad sweeping, like yeah. understanding of the way a lot of folks do it, especially if you look at like the literature on people who have studied it yeah. and things like that. And interestingly enough, within mm -hmm. the swinger community, like when you start bringing in components of like polyamory, that gets kind of like confrontational with some of the people that are like, um, adamant swingers that don't want that emotional component in. Like I've, ex I've experienced that firsthand with uh, women that I've dated that like had issues um, evolving from swingers to non-monogamous dating, which seemed very interesting that you, you're already interacting sexually with other people. You think it'd be an easy, natural step, but it wasn't because they're so um, uh, committed to that outward perception and that um, rule of not allowing emotional attachment of being separate from one another with their dating pursuits. That seems like it could run into problems saying no emotional attachments. Oh yeah. Most um, people do. <laughs> uh, yeah. You're, you're going to run into issues. Um, because it, it does take out that jealousy portion. Like you are with someone else, but you know, it's not like that serious. You only have feelings for me. Um, yeah. I wonder if, if you could look at the success rate of that compared to uh, non-monogamous. We need data on this. I think there actually are. There is like, there is some comparative data between swinging and polyamorous. But one of the biggest issues my that I think about that sort of data right now is that um, it's all typically the people who are willing to participate in the research studies are like highly educated, um, upper to middle class white folks. Um, and so we have very limited actual data because that doesn't actually match people who identify as polyamorous or consensually non-monogamous. It's the people who, they don't have a risk if they participate, essentially. Like if you are this upper middle class white person, you're not gonna have the same kind of risk participating in research as people of color do. And so like that, the data unfortunately is super skewed based on demographics because of that. Um, and that's something that I'm hoping to change with my research is making sure that um, my research is inviting and that people of color do feel welcome and that I'm intentional about creating those communities um, to un better understand the way that everyone does this because it is, it does, non-monogamy transcends all of these um, demographic factors, but it's how do we, how do we invite people to the conversation um, and how do we get actually good information on it so that people who do want to learn more can step into those spaces. I would love to see that because we know that the, Institution of marriage has what a 50% success rate. 
Um, I, I would like to see the other ones. Uh, I, I wonder if it, maybe it's just the same, you know, maybe it's just choose the one or what, do you have a feeling like if you had to bet on it, would you say there's a difference in success rate with monogamy and non-monogamy? Are you defining success by longevity, by like maintaining the commitment? Um, or just, uh, yeah, see, that's, that's difficult. Maybe just failed would be either separation that didn't end well instead of evolving into something new uh yeah i don't know i guess I that can longev- happen with monogamy too i i think longevity with like the continual opportunity for growth within the relationship is kind of a, how the way i perceive success it's like it's not just a matter of how many years can we tick off the old belt and like how many like how can we keep plugging along it's like hey are we doing this and challenging ourselves are we still evolving as individuals and with each other that could be like a way to kind of qu- uh qualify uh, longevity and a successful relationship. Well, I would, I, I might argue that success could look at like contentment factors, like how good do you feel in your relationship? What are your own individualized markers for what a successful relationship feels like? Because I do think a lot of people interpret longevity as success and I'm not saying that's wrong. It's just define it, right? Define what the hell success is instead of making a broad sweeping statement of like, this is what successful relationships look like. Um, and so I think if, I do know that like contentment, happiness factor, the, that research has been done. Again, unfortunately, it's not super demogra- demographically robust, um, but uh, folks who are in non-monogamous relationships tend to fare just above married folks when it comes to contentment and happiness. Um, there are a couple of studies that are, that are about that. They're a little bit dated though. They're in like the early 2000s, those were done. Um, if, if we're talking about longevity, I think, I think it entirely, I, I, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. Cause I know that regardless of relationship type, relationships, people break up. <laughs> mm. um, and especially well, okay. if you're trying to so, transition from monogamous into polyamorous. And if you're like unhappily monogamous and trying to transition into non-monogamous, like, like that's a hot They have the kid to save the marriage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, Let's have a non-monogamous well, relationship. Well, so it all, it's the a reason I want to ask, it, is longevity, I think, matters. Uh, so Mila just asked this question. If you're parents and you have a child, mm-hmm. how does that, I mean, you could, is it like it takes a village? Um, I'm sure the mom wouldn't want, I mean, you want to talk about jealousy. A mother having someone else act like the mother is probably that times 100, right? So, and I think the goal would be to co- parent the child as long as possible and have a have a stable family for the child so when that monkey wrench is thrown in the equation in success do you still think success is based on longevity or is it just do you separate the romantic part from the parenting so this is where I have people tell me that I am the devil incarnate and that I am a terrible, terrible human. Um, I don't necessarily adhere to our cultural understanding that like a stable relationship is like a mom, a dad, and a kid. Looking like at our evolutionary history up into a hundred years ago, like people didn't know their paternity results. That's why marriage was so important. Um, they like, cause it's sort of loosely guaranteed that that was like the lineage of the child, right? Sort of, but that's why it was important for women to be monogamous and men for not to be. Um, so that's just a whole other hot mess of a ball game. But I do think- You just blew my mind right there, by the way. <laughs> Yay. I never had, <laughs> yeah, I never knew that. There's all kinds of reasons. And there's this, yeah, I could go into all kinds of talks about that kind of stuff. But the additional components on top of that are like, when we look at other cultures, like multi-generational family and parentage is normal. Having a child have multiple people who are adults who can support and sustain and help raise them, that's been something that interculturally has happened. And so this weird idea of the nuclear family is very new. And we've spent a lot lot of our like time trying to prove that it's the healthiest. And it's also become like a marker of what like a six, like 
what do they people argue that it's like the thing that upholds American values and like I said this is why I'm the devil incarnate to a lot of people I think that's nonsense like how about let's it, like have some honesty go on and like talk about love in a more robust way talk about commitment talk about what longevity means to raise a child in a thoughtful way um, I get a lot of questions about like when do you come out to your kids and it's like if you're just doing it and you're practicing it and you show them that like this way of loving is just as valid then like they just get a gaggle of parents in their life that are all supportive and loving and there's a woman named elizabeth chef who does a lot of research on this she wrote a book called the polyamorous next door um she actually has the longest um study that's going studying children in polyamorous relationships and she argued she says that like children of polyamorous relationships are just as like happy, just as adjusted. Um, there is this sort of argument of if you are, oh, what is it like, the more adults you're exposed. Single parent? Well, yeah, that's part of it, right? Like single parents are a big part of our culture now. Um, but there but are like, studies the, that say single parents or, or a parent that's a, a non-biological father is a huge determining factor of, um, risk if you're going to be a felon or um i think it's income generated and like mm -hmm. college there's also risk um, of, of uh, um what is the word i'm looking for like abuse and things like that too and so there are she is actually she has actually produced studies on what that looks like and how it's different but again if you have more parents who are and i would loosely call these parents like it depends on the family structure it depends on who is doing this like most folks that I know have a primacy relationship and have a baby. And so they do live together and cohabitate as a unit and then they have other partners, but those partners don't necessarily meet their kids. Have you met any of your other partners' babies? Um, yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. So a couple times. I think there was maybe one where I didn't, but, uh, oh, actually, no, there's, yeah, I have met, I have met, but I, I was with one partner for about a year and I didn't meet her kids. So that was just like logistics, I think. It wasn't for a lack of desire. Uh, to not meet the kid, it just like didn't work out. But I've met a lot of my partner's kids. Yeah. So it just depends. And, on... and they're still with their with the biological father. And I think in all cases, no, it was like uh, they were with a new partner that was their primary, and they had the kid from a prior marriage or a prior relationship. But like the the present primary partner was like raising the kid and like a father figure in their life. Mm -hmm. And you're like, Uncle Ryan, this is Uncle Ryan. Yeah, the weird Uncle Ryan that pinches Uncle the Ryan. cheek and gives him a $5 bill. Hey, you're good, you. I'll be back next month. <laughs> but that all depends on the people that are doing it and how they're deciding to do yeah. it. And a lot of people don't decide to co-parent at all. They have their baby, and that's not necessarily a part of their other relationships. That being said, there are people that, like, as a trifecta, decide to have a baby, and they raise it together. It entirely depends on the group of folks. But arguably, based on Elizabeth Chef's research, um, the, the people raised in those, and she's tracking them now. They're all in their late teens at this point. Like I said, those markers of... Um, contentment, um, well-adjusted, however you measure that. All of that kind of stuff is the same. Yeah, because in my mind, before you said that, I was thinking of those, like, it, you see the studies from, like, right-wing people saying, like, single-parent families are horrible for the kids. But now, after talking to you, I'm thinking maybe that's the same thing we're talking about with serial monogamy, where it's, like, there's a strained relationship. They're trying to keep it together for the kids. It turned out bad. The parents hate each other. They're going from one failed relationship to the other. That's going to be bad for the kid, no matter what. Yeah. So I wonder if well, having one non-monogamous, all that kind of stuff too, makes it also very much more difficult. Oh, oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder if if maybe the parent and the other are just friendly and good to each other and supportive in their life still, if the outcome would be different, and I'm guessing it would be, um, even if they're no longer the primary relationship. Mm -hmm. But once again, you guys don't think so, but I really think you guys are more evolved than the rest of us because just of the, emotion, just, the emotional just intelligence. <laughs> I think you guys are more, well, the emotional intelligence you need, the resilience you need, the perspective and open-mindedness and i do think you need more capacity and tools inside 
or at least you earn them going through these feelings and, and articulations that are going to come up inevitably. I, I like feel like there's that. a lot of growth. I like how you said that. Like, it's the tools that you earn. It definitely has been a progression. Like, if, like, we tried throwing people into the same scenarios that we encountered, like, a few years without the experience that Steph and I have had with our own communication, like, uh, other partners, like, their heads might have exploded. I mean, we, we've gotten there through trial and error, like, a lot of self-reflection, a lot of questions towards each other, a lot of emotional ups and downs. So it, I like how you framed it as, like, yeah, it's, it's earning it. It's a, it's a progressive process. You start right. somewhere and then you keep, <laughs> you keep, you keep developing and growing. It's, you gotta, you gotta start somewhere. And from there, it's just like learning anything else, I think. Well, making the decision to do yeah. it is the first yeah. thing, right? It's yeah. like, we're going to give this a whirl and see what happens. And to me, I'm so happy you said this word because I, on my unscripted Instagram page the other day, I was asking people if the word commitment didn't exist, what word would you use? And I had mine, but I didn't give it away. And I completely, it's resilience. Yeah. That's yeah. the word that I would use. Thank you for solving oh, okay. my word problem. <laughs> that is, that is um, interesting to think about it like that. If com the word commitment didn't exist, resilience that's what i would use pretty yeah well and i think it's interesting like how commitment can be kind of closely followed by a misplaced sense of obligation as well like well why am i committed so like, well, i've been with this person so long it's like i kind of or like we have kids or we have a house or something like i mean i think commitment's just a step away from like kind of a an, uh, an unexplored iteration of obligation or or potential, but, has a potential. you've invested so much too, that <laughs> What's that? if those are the reasons for doing it then that can be legit if that's yeah. why you're doing it. absolutely and just step into that and embrace it and don't make it seem like it's something else because mm -hmm. we conflate things like commitment and love and marriage and those conflations i don't think are really serving us because then we can't untangle them it, i'm guessing marriage the institution of marriage isn't accessed much in non-monogamous relationships do you think there's benefits of it or do you think that's another total cultural thing um that is we kind of just have the the remains of that we're still using a lot of folks do actually get married um a lot of folks who are non-monogamous are married or do get married it is still an institution that is widely accepted non-monogamously which is ironic because you can't have multiple marriages so you know it's illegal um if you do that but that's where like other sort of ceremonies come in like commitment ceremonies and things like that that people have i do think that there's just kind of an inherent human need to like celebrate cool shit like good relationships and i think that's why marriages still have a hold on us um ryan and i have joked for a long time that someday we'll have a commitment ceremony where we will do the um unbreakable vow from harry potter um so that <laughs> someday <laughs> it's not a joke yeah it's our cat tonks will be there um we have a problem <laughs> And so, like, I do think that these markers, these rituals are a big part of it. Do I think the government, again, I am the devil incarnate. Um, does, should the government be a part of this? No, I don't think so. But I think other people do like that. They appreciate the tax write-offs and all that kind of shit. Um, so, cool. If they want to use those systems, use them. But it just depends on why you're using them and what you're doing them for. And as long as you think critically about it, I think that's what matters. Yeah, especially if you have kids, like legally marriage does a lot of things. Like if your partner is in the hospital, you you have say over some of the things that, that happens to them. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah. I joke that I'm going to adopt my partners. That's how I'm going to find my You're going to adopt them? <laughs> that way I'll have all kinds sick of people. say. <laughs> I wonder if that's been done about before. it, actually. It seems to me. Oh. Uh, I'm well, not actually going to do that. That's too much paperwork. That would be a cool part of uh, your book, though. <laughs> right. <laughs> How do you create sort of governmental loopholes to be connected to your partners? Yeah. So have you found in your work um, helping people communicate and work transitioning into non-monogamy that this communication crosses over to different areas, let's say, um, with other members of the family or with work or peers, um, can this cross over to other areas of your life? 100%. Um, almost everything that I teach is 
I pull from all different resources, be it organizational communication, relational communication, conflict communication, and I spin it with ideas that are relative or relevant to romantic relationships. But absolutely the skill sets that I teach at large do translate across the board. Um, the listening, nonverbal, uh, how to set boundaries, like all of these things. That's why I actually do have a large monogamous base of folks who do follow me for relationship skills too. Um, I actually work, I have one client right now who's monogamous. Um, these just skill sets absolutely translate. Mm. Uh, Ryan, do you have any experience with, with what you've taken the tools and the growth with your relationship into other areas of your life or working with other people? Um, I, I think so. Like the, uh, the critical thinking factor being one, instead of just readily accepting something because of, I think you, you said at the very beginning of the, uh, the live, like, because we feel it, like when someone asks you, well, why do you do this? Cause I feel it. It's like. Uh, diving deeper, taking a, a, an honest look at myself when it comes to deconstructing certain beliefs, um, and then how I try to break that down and share it to people um, is definitely a tool that I've applied to, like being a teacher, um, also in the way that I approach my, my relationships. So I, I would say that that, like that self-awareness, that emotional intelligence, having empathy for people, I think the empathy that I've gained from this particular practice is really big as well. Sorry, I just got distracted by a comment that I'm reading. You can sign an advanced directive and assign any person to make medical decisions for you and it doesn't have to be a spouse. This is why I need a law degree. What? You guys need to get on that. <laughs> right? How many people can you add? Right. <laughs> All of them. How, how many people can be in charge of <laughs> Cool. Dude, this is like, eye-opening this conversation um, i want to thank you guys again yeah. could could you guys once again uh tell me more about where to find you uh, more about how to get this book that's coming out oh no you're frozen oh. are we back you're good okay <laughs> you're good so i have two accounts i have my sort of more uh movement fitness basic account, which is SK Polecat. Um, that's the one I've joined through this live. And then unscripted relationships is my other Instagram handle. And that's where on both of those accounts right now, the link is in my bio for my Kickstarter. Um, I just successfully reached my first fundraising goal for my book. Um, and I'm working towards getting funding for line editing, which is always an exciting expense to have. Um, so you have the option to get the one, be one of the first people to get that book if you contribute to the campaign um in my bio you can also sign up for i have i monthly i send out a syllabus which is all kinds of readings and activities on the topic of the month and this month is um movement i do take i do have a really broad definition of what movement is though so if you have any interest in that you can also shoot me a dm um, and i will send that syllabus to you i'm not writing awesome. a book <laughs> what Get on that. It'd Write a, a blog. If I did, it'd be a coloring book. <laughs> they have adult coloring books. That's big. Yeah, absolutely. It's a thing. Oh, if they want, if people want to find me, it's just my name, Ryan Tripicana on Instagram. Yeah. And then our facility is uh, GenFit Denver, also on the IG. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Tripicana, T-R-I-F-I-C-A-N-A. -A. Yeah, that's it. Got it. Yeah. I had to write that down. Cool. Thank you guys so much. Thank you so uh, much. This was so much fun. Dude, this was awesome. I, yeah, I want to talk some more it. and I look forward to uh, checking out that book. Yeah. All right. Yay. Cool. <laughs> Have a good one. Thank All you. All right, guys.